Are you an HR department of one trying to figure out how to balance task and strategy while keeping up with changes in regulatory compliance? Do you need a fresh outlook on old topics? Then stop what you're doing, grab your coffee, and get ready to recharge. If you have people, you have problems to solve and things to do. Your host is Brenda Neckvottle, a 20-year human resource professional, ready to explore the HR industry with veterans of business and life, with fresh eyes and new ideas. Learn about the rapidly evolving changes in employment law around the country, as well as new tactics to deploy and build engagement in your work. Workforce. If you're looking to implement new practices to make your job easier in HR, then this podcast is for you. Hey everyone, this is Brenda and thank you again for joining me for another episode of Best Practices in HR. Uh, today we've got a really awesome episode. We're actually going to be talking to one of my clients <laughs> today, believe it or not. And she's a pretty awesome lady. Um, the reason why I brought her on, she, this is in um, actually part of a three unsegmented part of um, what I usually hear and see in the field and I wanted to bring in three clients so but in three different capacities too so Elaine actually is the office manager of a small business we're going to be eventually bringing in her son which is going to represent a much younger business owner and then we're going to bring in a CEO of a company who is representative of a much older much more experienced CEO so that way you guys can kind of get a, a chance to see the differences but yet a lot of the same things that are coming into play so it's it's going to be cool and um, it's going to happen over the next several weeks so this is really kind of the kickoff to that but um, today I am really, really thankful. If this is the first time you've joined me, thank you so much. Um, it's been fantastic. This is a fun show. It's got a lot of information to it. You're definitely going to walk away learning something, and I certainly invite you to continue to come back and join the journey with me. For those of you who have returned, thank you, oh my gosh, for continually checking in, seeing what we're up to every week seeing what I'm up to and seeing what out of the trouble that I'm in that I get in pretty regularly. So um, <clears throat> with further ado, let's go ahead and get this started. Um, today in the studio, we've got Lola, who is snoring away behind me. She is my veteran comfort dog, who usually will, at some point in time, say something. <laughs> and then our lovable, uh, her assistant champ, the Wonder Dog. But most importantly, today we are going to talk about a lot of wildness going on with employment law changes across the nation and remember folks I, I said this in a couple of episodes I said in the last episode you know this is the mid-year shift so these things are starting to change and we're gonna see a lot of up and down it and this is a great demonstration of how wonky law can actually get so we're gonna we're gonna talk about some of that uh, today we're actually gonna talk through asking through some of the tough HR questions again what's gonna be with Elaine DeVost um, I've got some announcements for you and a free resource towards the back end so before I begin just so you guys know that the information that is available through this podcast is for informational purposes only and not for the purpose of providing any type of legal advice ad advice guidance and advice mixed together is advice. <laughs> So welcome to my world. Um, if you do not have an employment attorney and you have a particular issue, um, definitely you can reach out to us. I'll be more than happy to go ahead and refer one to you through our affiliates program. And I'm also excited, before I forget, because I will and I didn't write it down, 
we have a new affiliate. I am excited to announce that Contingent Group is now on the affiliates page and Contingent Group is our preferred vendor and our recommended vendor for pre-employment and B2B background screening. So definitely check them out. You can go over to bestpractices.org, click on the affiliates link. They are now listed on there. Um, super talented people, very good. They are specialists in the field of risk mitigation in a wide variety of ways. Definitely go check them out. And matter of fact, at some point in time, we will have the CEO of that company on a future episode. But before we get into all of that, let's go ahead and dig into what is going on across the country. <clears throat> so, something to pay attention to. I, th I just thought it was an interesting article. Um, there were, there's an article that was written by Littler Mendelssohn PC, you can look them up just last week, um, that they discovered, they wrote an article that featuring employees were busted taking FMLA leave for a booze cruise down to the Caribbean, which reminds you that leave abuse is definitely out there. I certainly have encountered it. Um, there was unfortunately nothing that I could do about it, but sure enough, um, we couldn't prove it, but uh, it, it's not fun. So um, California has extended the paid family leave from six weeks to eight weeks. So if you're out in California, make sure you guys are staying on top of that and check out what's going on there and get some deeper details. Florida has now added vaping to regulated indoor smoking requirements and um, I'm not 100% sure if that's across city ordinance on that but those of you down in Florida vaping is now on the target. I'm, I'm sure we're going to see a lot more of that coming out um, over the next probably 12 to 18 months. Uh, Chicago City Council unanimously has approved a fair work week ordinance. So basically what that means is that it's going to require employers to provide predictive scheduling for specific industries. So if you guys are over in the city of Chicago, you're going to want to definitely look into that. Um, there are a, several new employment laws popping up in Nevada. I don't have all of them with me, but at some point in time, if you guys are over in that state, make sure that you reach out to your employment attorneys um, or you can hit me up and I'll be happy to directly uh, direct you to some resources where you can get that information. Uh, New Jersey has a task force that they're putting together. They are very knee deep in looking at independent contractor misclassifications. So um, when a state is looking into it, that means that they are also interested in pursuing it. So if you have not properly classified employees in the difference between a W-2 and a 1099, or you think that you might be on the edge or a little in the lighter gray versus the darker gray, then, you know, again, you can always reach out to me and we can certainly walk through that. But that is specific to New Jersey. And if you recall a little while ago, uh, Wisconsin was doing the same thing. Um, Oregon requires employers now to provide notice to employees prior to actually conducting an I-9 um, inspection. So that's new. Uh, I'm going to be really interested to learn about that. Um, Pittsburgh paid sick days is now on course to actually take a vet, uh, take effect. However, we've got some uprising over in Texas. 
San Antonio's now paid sick leave law has been is being challenged in the courts. However, Dallas does remain on track for an August 1st implementation and we'll go ahead and issue those rules, okay? So, Texas, you got some you got some stuff going on over there. So if you're over there, definitely pay attention. Virginia, in the state that I'm in, um, we are going to have some uh, wage statements, uh, wage payment statements potentially coming down the pike. So Virginia employers definitely be on the lookout. And then Washington State um, has decided to go ahead and push back the first reporting deadline for their paid family medical leave law. So if you're in Washington um, and you have not yet heard that, you've heard it here first. So folks, that is what we've got going on, and we're going to join Elaine here real soon. So today we've got a guest. She's awesome. She's a load of fun. She's also incredibly intelligent and has been a real joy to work with, and that is Elaine DeVost. She is from a small business called DeVost Lawn Care out here in uh, Virginia, and she is just absolutely fantastic. One of the reasons why I brought her on is because this is going to give listeners an opportunity to understand what kind of questions come out of various sizes of businesses. And in this case, this is what I would classify as a microorganization. It's a family-run business. You're going to learn a little bit more about them. But you're also going to understand where their mindset is within the structure of business and and how these questions align to the direction that they're going. So I'm not going to waste any more time. I'm going to bring her on. You guys are going to really enjoy this. This is a really great, really great segment. Okay, folks, so we are here with a, a really awesome lady that I know very well. Her name is Elaine DeVos. She is, um, well, I'll... She's the, I'm going to call her the office manager <laughs> over at Elaine at uh, DeVos Lawn Care. And the, and she's kind of like um, the, the master at everything over there. Even every now and again gets to go out and push lawnmowers and cut people's grass and whatnot and get out. But she's an awesome lady. We've been working together um, for several months now. And part of the reason why I'm bringing Elaine on is that um, this is actually one of a three-part broken series. So... These episodes aren't going to be back to back to back, but Elaine is really great at asking me very strategic and smart business questions. And this is kind of one of those things that, you know, if you don't understand that other people ask these questions, some, some, I just find over time that clients tend to wonder whether or not they're actually asking the right question or not asking the right question. So from Elaine's perspective as an administrator, as, as somebody who has her finger on the pulse of the business, I wanted to bring her on. So welcome. Thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. Well, I am happy to be here, Brenda. Thank you for inviting me. Okay, you're welcome. So before we get started, Elaine, can you do me a favor and just kind of share with everybody a little bit about you, um, where you come from, what some of your background is, and and please, you know, definitely talk about what DeVos Lawn Care is. Okay. Well, I am currently with DeVos Lawn Care, which is a family-owned small business, and it's Recently started in 2018. My son runs it. He's the CEO and my husband and I work for him. I am the office manager, as you have mentioned. My background is from upstate New York is where we originated from. And 
so upstate New York, I have about 25 years of legal background, whether it was in the courtrooms with the judges or um, with the attorneys. And although I have had a lot of dealings with people and customers, because I also did managerial in um, convenience stores, we've always had an HR department. So I always referred all of that stuff out to the HR. It's not something I really had a hand, had to have a hands-on experience with. So starting this own, our own business and being the go-to person with these issues, um, that's why I'm with you and looking for your expertise. It's what I learned a long time ago is the best, most successful business are the ones that understand their strengths and their weaknesses and pull together a team to make sure that it's a good fit so your all your weaknesses are covered and they become mm -hmm. strengths. Yep, absolutely. Yeah, that's awesome. So one thing that you'll notice about Elaine and I is that we do tend to have some fun. <laughs> we put some margins on it for the show. Yeah. So, you know, every now and again, like one of us will come up with a smart comment or something like that. But um, so uh, we do tend to kind of go a little off script every now and again but that's okay but she's really she's, that's what you know what that's what makes the world go around right folks so okay so let me kind of set the tone here so elaine has a list of questions or hr related questions business related questions I, I don't know what they are we didn't go over them i have no idea what she's going to be asking me um she'd be throwing me a left ball from from you know a curve from left field for all i know but um so this is going to be it's a very candid conversation and and realistically it's like if you are looking for any type of guidance this kind of gives you an understanding of, of what a consultative relationship really should look like so um, are you all set are you good I'm all set. okay so so let's do this so hit me up with your first question okay so one of the struggles that we have found is as a family-owned business is our mindset and the challenge is are we hiring criteria is our hiring criteria relaxed or is it still at the expertise of levels of qualifications and experience if they are family members that we're hiring so our challenge my question is how do I get my mindset from an either or mentality which a lot of family when it's family owned it's okay it's either this way or it's that way to we need both and this is why we need it. Does that make sense? So are you, no, can you re, okay. just re, ask it again and just rephrase it. Now, are you looking at, should we hire, you know? Uh, okay, so when we're, so and a family member comes to us and because they're a family member. Your family member or somebody else's family member? Our fam being a family owned business, if a family owned, if a family within our family comes to okay. us, and says, I want to be hired okay. to work for your law uh, for your law firm for your lawn care. Yeah, for your law for your law firm, sure. <laughs> for our lawn care, but I don't have these qualifications. But because I'm family, you need to hire me, and you need to pay me this amount. How do we change our mindset and keep it? Yes, your family, but you don't 
qualified, you're not qualified. How do we change our mindset from being a guilt mindset to saying this is not best for our business? So we cannot do that and still keep it, still keep our family, family. How do we separate the two from family and business? Okay, that's a really I'm good put question. put you on the spot, the very first one. That was my hardest question. <laughs> I like it. Um, that's fine. So, so what you're looking at, I totally hear what you're saying. So the question is, is that we want to bring, you know, this is a family-run operation. Mm -hmm. And we want to make sure that we maintain family-run operation, obviously. But how do we make sure that what needs to get done is done and yet we're still upholding our standards or should we be more relaxed because it's family and you know it's a family business so so it's a good question it's definitely a question um that has a tendency to this this mindset throws a lot of family-owned businesses off so so here's how i would put it this way i worked for a family-owned business i worked for it for about five years and it is not easy. I mean, work is never easy because if it was easy, we'd call it simple, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> so um, when it comes to family-owned businesses, there's a different dynamic that exists other than working for, you know, not just a company where you have no, you know, relation ties. Mm -hmm. And there's nothing wrong with upholding standards. There's And you should because family-owned businesses tend to sometimes get in the spotlight negatively for favoritism because they're family and it, it's a double-edged sword so if if it were me owning my own family-owned business then i would i would really look at my family members and say like if you want to come into this business if you want to come into this company you're going to be mentored just like anybody else's. You're going to come up through the rank and file just like everybody else's. And it does a couple of things. Number one, it, it shows that you guys are really focused on fair and equal distribution across the company. But it also helps you because if you, you know, you're only as strong as your weakest link. And if, and sometimes family members will think, okay, great, I've got a shoe in, I don't have to work that hard, or I have to put out as much because I'm covered, I'm under this umbrella, I'm family, they're not going to screw me over, blah, blah, blah. And, and maybe they don't necessarily say those things exactly, but that is the kind of je ne sais quoi that comes out of them, right? That's that kind of mindset, that attitude that happens. And so if you are not treating your family members the same way you, you treat your employees, in regards to they, they kind of have to develop the same skill set, they have to de develop the same, you know, values, same mentality, then, you know, it's already hard enough to manage a staff of people of different backgrounds, different opinions. Now throw family dynamic in on top of that. So if you make that, that very clear in the very beginning that you're not going to be treated any different, you are going to show up on time. There is no slacking off. If you screw up, you're going to hear about it. Uh, you know, that kind of a thing. And and what's really great about families is that you can be a little bit more candid about that. Um, when I mentioned that I worked for a family business, I did it for five years. Um, I was the first grandchild that actually worked for the company. And there was, at the time, 11 of us? No, 13 grandchildren total. 
and unfortunately we lost one and uh it just happened to be him that was there so he started working for the company about mm. about a year year and a half after i did and i was you know being groomed i you know i was doing what i was supposed to do i was i was there i was working my butt off and you know, my grandfather was like, well, you have to be in, you know, here, here, and here all at the same time. It's just like physically impossible. But, you know, I was living up to the expectations. He comes in and he was the spoiled child. And I very quickly realized that his charm and woo um, was not protecting him from actually having to do the work. Mm-hmm. And so... Um, yeah, it got very uncomfortable after a while, and it, it taught me a lesson years ago of, of really the strong distinctions between, you know, just being a family business and actually holding people accountable. Does that help? Yes. Thank you very much. It yeah. Does help. Yeah. So don't be, yeah, don't be afraid to hold your family members accountable. The other piece of it is, is that you're grooming them, and I mentioned this, you know, before when, in my old job, you're grooming them. So. You know, look, it, every company needs to identify a successor. And, you know, your son is the is the owner of the company. And if he doesn't have a successor in place, who, what's going to happen to the organization? Now, granted, he's young enough that that's not for, you know, a couple decades down the road. But it's still a good question to ask. So if you have a family member that's being groomed to step in, and understands the business, knows the business in and out, knows the trade, right? Then that's a good thing to have because then the then then the family business, the family aspect of that continues on. If you don't have somebody that wants to be groomed, trust me, hiring a family member, you'll find out real quick whether or not they they've got it or not. Mm-hmm. And and it'll make it very easy for you guys to be able to determine what direction you want to go when it comes to succession planning as far as the business goes. Okay. Yep. That makes sense. See, every time uh, she said that makes sense, that means I've answered her question. You did. <laughs> you did like, answer really? my question. That's true. <laughs> she always says that every time I answer a question. Okay, that makes sense. <laughs> yep, it does. Okay. Um, so we can we move can. forward. <laughs> move forward. Uh, Go ahead. Next question. Another another question I have be because of the fact that we did come from upstate New York and, and things are so different. Um, an under, a person is under the age of 18 that wants to work for a small business such as ours, especially a trades business where you're around heavy equipment. Mm-hmm. Why is that so frowned upon? So is this a short question? Uh-huh. Or is there more to it? Now that that's it's just I know that and the reason why the reason why I'm asking is because we we particularly we do not but we know other businesses that do and they ask us right out you know why why can't I why can't okay. so I no that's a fair question right out there no that's fine and that's a fair question so um, you know be it in New York we're in Virginia, it could be in Nevada, it could be in Washington State, it doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. So first off and foremost is that anybody under the age of 18 is still considered a minor. Mm-hmm. Um, and so with that, there comes an added level of responsibility. And minors aren't emotionally 
and intellectually developed just yet to be able to start to take on the responsibilities of adulthood. They're getting there. I mean, you know, they're in boot camp of life right now. And so when you have somebody that's over the age of 18, now they're a legal adult. And those things have very specific legal definitions that come with it. So when they're in a, they, when they are a legal adult, um, based off of uh, what is required of being a legal adult, which is basically just being over the age of 18, then insurance companies um, will insure them. Um, workers' compensation will insure them. Um, and what I mean by initial, when I first comment on, on insurance companies, I'm talking about liability insurance, workers' compensation insurance. Okay, again, um, you know, at the age of 18, and, and this I think could also depend upon the state, but they could either apply for and obtain a CDL or they may have to wait a couple of years to get a CDL, but they are able to be uh, trained on how to operate a forklift. So, so it's a benchmark. And when a company hires under the age of 18, you are raising the limit of liability to your organization. They, they haven't had as much experience with um, dealing with, you know, major life decisions. They haven't had any, a lot of experience of dealing with, you know, what happens if there's an accident at the workplace. I mean, they're, they're green in life in general. And they won't know exactly what to say. They don't know exactly what to do. They don't know how exactly how to act. They, they, you know, their abilities really haven't quite been up there. Although, like I said, they're growing and developing. They're still young. Mm -hmm. And so that's a lot of it is most insurance companies won't insure workers' compensation or liability insurance. The flip side of that is, is that, you know what, anybody who is legally able to work under the age of 18 won't have a hard time accepting, you know, minimum wage or $8 an hour for a position. You know what I mean? Right. And so I think in an industry like yours, where you have a lot of independent workers, and I'm not talking about a company that is, you know, nationally known. I'm not talking about, you know, a lawn company that has a brick and mortar lawn, you know, storefront operation. I'm talking about, you know, mom and pop garage businesses, you know, not much different than yours. They don't necessarily understand that. They, they see it's like, okay, young person can get out there fully capable, can do the work probably quicker than me because I'm a lot older and my joints aren't hurt. You know, my joints are hurting. Um, and I don't have to pay them as much because they don't have life expenses. Well, there's inherent risk that comes with that. And people that hire individuals under the, under the age of 18, they have to know their state and local um, labor laws in regards to how much time they can allow them to work. They're also taking on responsibility. I mean, this, this past week, we've had, you know, we've been tipping the scale in 100-degree weather up here. Or down here, or whatever, wherever you are compared to where we are, we're either up or down. But we've been hitting 95 to 100 with literally like 100% humidity, and it's a bone crusher down here. So when you've got a miner out there working, you have to remember that that person can get dehydrated just as easily as you do, and they don't always know what to do when you know they don't know the limits. So they'll keep pushing themselves. Uh, they push themselves. Or they may work and work and work if they're, you know, a pretty driven individual. All the while, they could be depleting their bodily fluids and putting themselves in a really bad position. So, it just, miners take a little extra care. Um, 
but it's not anything to take lightly. And if a minor has an accident, you can't leave them alone on a property. Like you can't say, okay, I need you to go to this house. They may be, they may know how to drive. They may be able to, you know, tow a small flatbed trailer. They could be 16, 17 years old and that's great, but you really can't leave them alone because what if something happens? Are they going to handle it effectively or efficiently? Or what happens if they, you know, pull a lawnmower over their foot? Right. Right. You know? Are they going to sit under a shady tree and sit there and hit Facebook and Instagram all day, you know, or play video games on their phone? I mean, they just require a lot of attention. Correct. Yep. Well, that makes sense, too. See, told you I answered a question. Okay. <laughs> um, which now leads me into another question. Okay. Being a small individual startup business that wants to be everlasting and be a larger business down the road. Right. What is the difference between a 1099 employee versus a 1099 person and versus an employee? When does it cross that line? Where yours, for example, if I was to say to somebody, okay, I'm going to, you're going to be a 1099 Am I allowed to then have them come work and use our equipment, or does that make them an employee? So you're talking about the difference between a 1099 contractor and a W-2 employee. Yes. So, and that's a really great question. That is a very common question, particularly in small business. Very, very common. And the IRS actually has very distinct, um, a very distinct position on this that's vaguely written. <laughs> be honest with you but the short and the long of it involves span of control and that's the best way to look at this so so it is written in a vague manner but it's also written very specifically too so it, it you know the irs will make stipulations and you can actually look this up um it'll identify that taxes are not withheld or taxes are withheld right um, if it's a W-2 employee, they have to be provided X number of hours. In other words, it's guaranteed work. If it's a 1099 contractor, there's no guarantee of anything. But it, but the 1099 really is more of a business-to-business -business relationship versus an employer-to-employee relationship. Um, and again, that comes back down to span of control. So when you bring an employee in to a company, you're giving them a set schedule, you're giving them equipment, you're giving them specific directions, guidance, and oversight uh, and on what the job is, what needs to be done, how to do it, and then they're supervised. Then they receive a regular you know, paycheck. They have taxes being withheld. And benefits has nothing to do with it, right? So it's all about... Are you, how specific you're going to be, how much oversight is going to be required, and if you are going to be, when you do compensate them, are you going to be withholding taxes? Now, that doesn't mean that you can have a W-2 employee and can't withhold taxes. You have a W-2 employee, you are required to hold withhold taxes by law. <clears throat> so, but it is a distinction between the two. When you get to a 1099, it's like I said, it's a little bit more of like a B2B relationship. Um, you basically say, here's my issue. I need you to go fix this. Here you go. Turn it over. There's very little oversight. <clears throat> you are bringing somebody in to which they are not a, uh, you know, they are, they are actually more of a, a, like a subject matter expert 
or somebody who has expertise in a field that can accomplish something for you in a specific time frame. Um, you're not going to tell them what to do. You're not going to tell them, you, well, you'll give them, you know, the scope of what needs to be done, but you won't be managing them on a day-to-day -day basis. So there's a very distinct difference when it comes to that. And and where it can get a little groggy is, I'll give you a really great example, is in <clears throat> when you're in the diving world, when you get into scuba diving, instructors are not ten, necessarily 1099, or excuse me, W-2 employees. They're more than likely to be 1099 employees. And the reason I say that is because they are not guaranteed an X number of employees. They are not given equipment to use other than, you know, air in a tank and whatever shop equipment they may need on occasion. They don't have a workstation. Um, they do understand that there is a curriculum that needs to be followed, but it's an industry-specific curriculum. And it's, it's not always the curriculum of the dive shop. Most dive shops will follow the industry-specific curriculum. Some dive shops may elaborate a little bit more and give more value to their customers, but that's a little bit different, right? So if they want in the curriculum extra safety drills to be performed, you know, there's also only so much time to do things in, so they can't really get too fat and happy on it. If they want to increase, you know, the amount of education as a culture surrounding safety, they can do that. But again, you're looking at you you got to really spend the right amount of time doing it. And then they get paid a stipend or they get paid a commission based off of the number of students that attend. Once that class is done, they brush their hands off and, you know, then they wait for enrollment for another one. So so that is so that's like saying it's like, OK, so here's the issue. I have these people that need to become certified. Um, We've got a classroom available for you to use, which is part of the service that we as an organization offer. So please come in and use our classroom. We have a pool set up. Please come in and use our pool. We have, a, you know, a, an open water body of water. Please come in and use that. Um, but essentially, that's it. Like, there's, there's very little requirement. Oh, yeah, and by the way, you have to uphold industry standards in order for you to, you know, remain insured and, and keep your credentials up as an instructor. So it's not us dictating, it's the industry standards. So <clears throat> that kind of gives a little bit different. So if in an industry like yours, and you've got part-time employees, full-time employees, you've got people coming in, you have specific schedules, lawns have to be done a certain way, you've got company standards that up, have to be upheld, you know, are they getting a lunch break? Do they have a schedule? So yours really more is that W-2 nature versus just bringing somebody in to say, hey, here's a problem I need you to, you know, I, you know, here's here's the project or here's this, the thing that you have to work on and get done. And they're very distinct at that point. And sometimes the borders touch, but, you know, it's one of those things that you can err on the side of caution as being a W-2 and not necessarily go wrong but you can also err on the side of being a 1099 and also not going on just depends on the variables okay all right and then for me as far as an the office manager when i'm when i'm making up an employee file what should i keep what needs to be kept in that file to be in compliance with everybody Right. So typically, I mean, just the baseline, what's, it, what's considered, um, what is considered a condition of employment. So a condition of employment <clears throat> is um, 
your W-4 tax filing, or excuse me, your W, yeah, your W-4 tax filing forms for both the federal and the state, <clears throat> you should be using, and I know you guys do, um, you should be using an employment application. The reason I know you do is because I wrote it. Um, you use an employment application. Um, you know, if somebody gives you a resume, you want to retain that, and um, you also want to have the job description that they have signed off on. So a condition of employment is really the job description, the offer letter, the uh, application. Those are things that you can come back and say, here's what you've informed me of. This is your experience. This is what you've signed off on. You know, you've, you've told us that, you know, everything in this information is true to the best of our best of your knowledge. And if we find out it's not, well, that is a violation against your condition of employment because we require that information to be accurate and, you know, truthful, right? right. So when some people, some people put, you know, goofy stuff on their application that they are something or they have a certification towards something and, and they don't. And if you find out that they actually don't have it, like, for instance, they can say that they went to a particular university and then if you do, you know, if it comes up that they've never been to school and they actually don't have a degree, that's, you know, that's a violation of, an, again, some of the language that should be in your employment application. It's a terminable offense, right? Yep. So you have those things in there. Um, uh, time and attendance records. Those are conditions of employment because attendance is a condition of employment. If you are not in attendance, guess what? You won't be employed, you know, <laughs> kind of thing. It's an easy explanation. Mm -hmm. um, the I-9 form is not a condition of employment. All that does is just verify immigration, right? So if they're withholding their taxes, or excuse me, if they're withholding, not they're withholding, oh my gosh, if they have direct deposit and you've got a form that gets filled out for that, that needs to be in there because now you're demonstrating that you are permitted legally to uh, put money into somebody's account. Conversely, if somebody has a child support order or a garnishment order of any kind, that's issued by the court, you want to retain that in the employee file because now you're demonstrating that you are legally being required to remove a specific amount of funds from the individual's paycheck. Not their wages, but they're actually uh, their, their funds from their paycheck. So it's like a wage withholding, but it's not at the gross, it's at the net. Okay. All right. And that makes sense. Thank you. Um, <laughs> um, my Social media. So since social media is such a big part of today's world, mm -hmm. what should or should not be said on social media? What's oh, Lord. <laughs> it's like a whole show that could be dedicated <laughs> to this. And, and there will be at some point in time. So social media has been a morphing beast over time. And when you're... So your company... It, your social media is directly connected to, you know, the, your owner of the company, which is your son. And I know you have access to it, too, but it's it's limited in scope. Mm -hmm. So when you're looking at what's going on with social, it kind of depends on the angle of this question. So I'm going to answer it in a couple of ways. So first off, if there's a company that has an administrator that is designated as the individual who will be making postings on behalf of the company, certain expectations need to be followed meaning that the person who's doing the posting needs to understand that they don't own the social media, they don't own the website, they don't own the content. That is 
ownership of the company. So it's intellectual property at this point. Um, you know, they there should also be expectations around understanding social proof. Um, in other words, being able to pull analytics and and understand the effectiveness of social media. And that's getting a little bit more into the job, but, but that's really what this person should be doing. That person also needs to understand <clears throat> that they cannot violate the trust of the company and post things that are on the company's social media page that is inflammatory towards the actual company. So it's one of those things that just because you have access doesn't mean that you should be airing your personal laundry under that particular access. Mm -hmm. It has to be totally professional. And in an organization like yours, where it's just limited scope to one or two people, um, you know, your son's social media is connected directly to him. You know, anybody who follows him understands that. And so, um, and you know, we three of us had this really interesting conversation recently. So I'm not saying anything that they don't know already, but there was some banter that was going on back and forth with other like companies in the area. And her son was very smart about it. He concurred with something that was being said, but took a step back and actually deleted it. And what he was concurring to was some. It wasn't. It wasn't like he was saying it to join the conversation. It was just kind of like a reaction, and it was like, "Oh yeah, well, welcome to my world, right?" And th and that and that's really all it was. It wasn't anything beyond that. But the conversation with the other parties really started to go south, and it was a lot of slamming employees, not anybody specific, but just in general. And it was it was really kind of de demonstrative of a very bad mindset as to. Um, how employees are or what they think that they are and and it, it, it was very clear that it grew a line of delineation between the two and then they started thinking you know saying what they did if an employee did this and what they did if an employee did that and it just it was it just got like really gross and it wasn't a good conversation to have so you know when you're an owner of a company you know if you go that route you know you can do it I'm not saying you can't but understand that there's ramifications to that and your son's very smart um, and he, he gets that really quickly. On the other side of the coin now and, and the reason why you know we had this conversation was is that you know people get offended really easily by what they see online because you know my golden rule in life my number one rule is you know in the absence of information people make stuff up. So if they're reading something that somebody's putting out there and they don't understand the context to it it's easy to get bent out of shape and it's easy to get offended and it's easy to take offense to something. And so if that's the case, then what you don't want is you don't want negative press being out there. You don't want a bad image. Um, you may not necessarily view it as a bad image, but again, if you're only thinking about what you think is and isn't, you're not considering what other people are looking at what is and isn't, right? Right. So in this case, it was if somebody were to get bent out of shape and really want to stick it to somebody, they've got social proof to be able to say, look at what this guy said and send it to an organization that would want to see it <laughs> you know? and look into it a little bit more and, and, and not be really as friendly as me. If I were to say, help me understand what this comment is about, it right. would be like, let's take a look at your records and you know, I need to see all your payroll. And you know, I mean, it could actually spark an audit. 
And so, you know, you don't want that, you don't want something to happen. And, and I realize that I'm being very vague, but I'm also trying to protect the conversation because I am privy to it too as well. But so you don't want to, you don't, you don't want to put yourself on somebody else's radar and become their bullseye, right? Right. And in doing so is to say things on social media that you necessarily shouldn't or airing your opinions and views on what your employees should and shouldn't do and be and just keeping up that drama that's that's a ton of bad stuff now the other side of it is is that even though employers should and shouldn't do certain things well employees should and shouldn't do certain things either but there's a distinction is that employees have certain protections under facebook and under uh, national labor relations act that employers don't and conversely employers have an open door to per pursue control over social media that employees have a tendency to open for them. So let's take a step back and take a look at the employee piece. So on the employee piece, if an employee talks about a workplace condition, and what I mean by that is they can talk about their pay, they can talk about their environment, like they can say that it's a hostile environment, they can say it's a good environment. They can say that, you know, a boss is doing something to them that is in violation of discrimination laws, harassment laws, things like they can actually air that information out there. And employees, you can't do anything about it, right? They are is a concerted and protected activity under uh, National Labor Relations Act. So it bends people out of shape. It really gets on, it grates on employers' nerves when an employee is talking about paying compensation and benefits because, you know, we, we come from this history of it's inappropriate and vulgar to actually talk about your compensation. It's in a, it's nobody else's business, right? And you and I, we were taught that way growing up. Mm-hmm. And conversely, their parents were too but oddly enough even though people were going up that way they still do it you know Uh, and they do it within what they think is a close-knit circle well in the in the land of open communication which is apparently (laughs) what we have now we'll just call it that people have access to share stuff and they do and they don't think about okay you know what's going to happen afterwards so when you have an employee that is talking about negatively about the company if you go and you if you terminate them or um, if you discipline them for something that's protected and now people are really aware of what is and isn't protected, um, they can they can create problems for you. Now, here's where they're not protected. If they come out and they say that they are going to commit an act of violence against another employee, if they are harassing an employee online, and, and bullying and making attempts to um, besmirch them or make them look bad publicly, then the employer has the right to step through the door and tell them to knock it off or conduct some form of disciplinary action because there is some there is a, a very blurred threshold of where the employer becomes responsible. The violence absolutely. If the employee is aware that an employee is making violent threats against another employee, then yes, they could have skin in the game if anything were to happen. Okay. So it's it kind of gets a little it kind of gets a little dodgy. There has only been one case that I'm aware of that has 
actually gone to the Supreme Court where the language on what can and can't be protected under the employer side um, ha- came out of this particular case, and believe it or not, it was a Walmart case. And the language, as I've seen it, is really long. And it makes it very clear that people understand that use of social media, um, <clears throat> it, that they have to, if they put something out there, if it really isn't their opinion, they have to state it. And there's there's a lot of provisions around it. So it gets complicated. And it's an ever-changing position but it's actually that change the amount of change that taken in the time that it's changed it's actually kind of slowed down a little bit so i think we've kind of leveled out for now a little bit in this until we get to a time and a place where you know that may change and i'm and i apologize elaine i'm going to elaborate a little bit more on something here so here's a really good example i had an i kind of caught wind from another client of mine that they let a manager go because he took pictures from her phone he grabbed her phone took pictures from her phone and texted them to himself now being around the block a few times and knowing you lane that i'm sure they were kind of little racy pictures i don't think this is just you know the random selfie coming out i'm pretty sure that there's a little bit more to it than that but they terminated him for sexual harassment well that's not sexual harassment that's just stupid <laughs> right that's just dumb right it was a dumb move to make it wasn't so he wasn't harassing her sexually they were her pictures he took uh-huh. them from her phone right mm-hmm. so i that really isn't that doesn't meet the definition of sexual harassment however if he were to turn around and use those pictures and post them on his social media does the employer have stake in the game? And in this case, yes, they do, because the guy who stole the pictures was a manager of the organization, and the girl was a subordinate. Mm-hmm. So yeah, there's individual lie. There's there's not individual, but there's liability, company liability attached to that. Right. You, you can't fix stupid sometimes, but <laughs> wow. Yeah, but I mean, the stuff like that happens, you know. Mm-hmm. Wow. So, yeah. <laughs> oh, right. Well, this leads me to my next question. And okay. that is, how important is it to document positives and negatives of your employer, employees? So, oh, and I love this question because, you know, as humans, we're wired to think in the negative. Just That's just who we are. So, mm-hmm. we are more quick to document what somebody's not doing than we are to document praise and acknowledgement of of really good stuff done. Now, there's a line of delineation between those two. When you have somebody that, when you look at a job, a job description and you see the essential functions of the role, and if they're doing all of those and meet your satisfaction, they're performing the job. You don't have to go, you know, it's not above and beyond. They're meeting your expectations, right? You don't have to document all of that. But when you've got somebody that has taken the extra step and they've, they've really, they've over, they've under, wait, what is it? Over promised, no, under promised and over delivered. I almost had it backwards. Mm -hmm. You know, if they get out there and they just like wow people and, they do far more than what the job requires. Yeah, you know, document those actions. Make them feel good. You're going to get a lot of mileage out of something like that because those are things that are important. Everybody wants to feel acknowledged, right? 
but and and understand that yes those should also go in the employee's file also understand that when you've got you know egregious situations and or you've got a ramping situation that you you're starting to see a progressive decline in desired behavior then yes you should be documenting those as well um if you have a person that is like attendance is probably one of the easiest ones to talk about here but if you have a an employee that has not shown up for work has not called but has never done that before does that warrant you know you know writing them up for the first time probably not because mm -hmm. it's a it's the first time right. but there's nothing wrong with making a notation on it on an attendance chart or making a notation on the calendar when you have those dates you can start to see patterns if it continues um, one of the smartest things that I used to do is that I would always make a note. I, you know, the company that I worked for, uh, an Excel spreadsheet that had attendance on it. And so every week when we did payroll, I would go through and I would put down if they were late or if they were absent. And, and it's amazing <laughs> when you actually look at it for, you know, on a spreadsheet out of 12 months and you see all these, you know, negative marks on their record. It's like, hmm. Yeah, they really do stink, don't they? <laughs> you know, it comes in really good. But conversely, you know, when you have to have that conversation with an employee, and, and this is exactly what I would do, is that, you know, I'd say, you know, we need to talk about your attendance. And, of course, obviously the defenses come up, the wall comes up, and, you know, they, oh, I'm never late and I'm not, blah, 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 because they don't think that you can prove it. Well, when you're smart and you can say, okay, so let me show you your attendance record here. And you put it underneath their nose, and they actually see how bad it actually looks it's like so if you're telling me that you're not late count tell me how many times count how many times you've been you know late within the last month or three months or whatever it is you know it's like and they you make them count it and it's like this is based off of your time records and then out of all the tests tell me how many times that you've been absent you know from here and then they look at you and they realize that you know you have them and it's like understand this is not my problem to fix this is yours so mm -hmm. I need you to help me understand how to fix it. So that's one way of using effective, you know, documentation. Another way of using effective documentation is to really just, you know, make these notations over time so that, you, you know, it's easy for us to forget things over the long haul. And we remember, typically remember only the last 90 days. So, it, it, you know, if you make notations about, your conversations with your employees and just short notes then when it comes time for you to do your performance evaluations then you've got stuff to draw on and you can go ahead and you know pull out it's like here's this is where you're doing great here's where I need you to make marked improvements on and you're actually using real situations that you've taken the time to capture um, the other piece, obviously, about, you know, documenting negative conversation or negative things is that you've got the required documentation if you have to move forward to a separation. Now, the question is, is that if you move forward in a separation, is all that positive stuff going to come back and neutralize everything? And my answer is no, because even though you have, a, you could have a star performer, but that doesn't absolve them from making a mistake. And they could be doing something so egregious that, 
you know, it warrants separation, but it just, it just doesn't, it, it may not make sense because you're looking at a record of an individual who has performed exceptionally well. Mm -hmm. However, violations of company policy has nothing to do with how well somebody's performed. It's a mistake. It's an isolated incident. And, and mm -hmm. hopefully it doesn't progress into multiple isolated incidences, right? Yeah. So does that answer your question? It does. And the one thing that while you were talking, I just realized is also if you're bringing it to their attention, hopefully what you both can realize um, if the employer hasn't is a person coming in five minutes late, 10 minutes late, even three minutes late after a course over a course of period that adds up to hours, mm -hmm. which is when you are a time-based business, as most businesses are, time equals money, and that's money that they're losing, the employer is losing, as well as the employee. Yeah, So that's, that's good to, to document that just, I don't know why I never thought of that in that perspective before, but I guess that's why we're having this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> well, it is, because you're losing productivity. Right. And that's what right. it is. And productivity does impact the bottom line. Right. And in companies where they have like benefits, for instance, you know, a good benefits administrator will take a look at in the long haul what attendance is actually doing to an individual's eligibility. So I used to have a trainer who um, would call out quite frequently and, you know, six months down the road, you know, we had to tell her, say, you are no longer eligible uh, to maintain your benefits because you're not, you know, you're not working 40 hours a week. And so here's your one shot to either get your, get your self back on pace again, which, by the way, is, you know, is a problem we've been talking to you about. But, um, you know, you're going to lose your benefits. And sure enough, she couldn't do it. She, you know, I, I said, maybe it's just best that you go down to part-time, which I'm willing to do for you. Um, because obviously full-time hours are a struggle. And she agreed. And, you know, it all worked out. But she lost her benefits before we even pushed her down to part-time. So, yeah. So it impacts. And what about, what is your advice on the best way to do bonuses or if they are doing that that week of for example last week having that excruciating heat and everybody coming through and doing an exceptional job showing up to work what is the best way to provide bonuses without worrying about repercussions as far as from an employer from an employer's view mm -hmm. is okay so you offer this incentive or this, well, I guess not really a bonus, it's more of an incentive because the bonuses would come after and then, you know, well, we appreciate the fact that you're doing this for us for doing a great job. But an incentive, my, I, my thought process is, my concern is if I say to this person, look, we have, if you can get this job done and do a great job in two days as opposed to the three days that we thought we were going to need because we seem to be a little bit farther ahead of schedule and if you just work a little bit harder how do you keep that from turning into the employee thinking well if i do this every job mm -hmm. i'll get an additional incentive 
Yeah. Uh, if I if I work less in the beginning, but then they want to push it, get me pushed, they will they will give me an incentive. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. So, you know, you can incentivize an employee in a number of different ways. And it could be simple as, <clears throat> you know, it doesn't always have to be money. And it could be something as simple as, believe it or not, bringing them popsicles, having popsicles available on a cold day, on a hot day like this. Um, I mean, we did that at CarMax years ago. We used to, you know, our managers, when we had our triple digit days, because there was no air conditioning in the shop at the time, they would go out and they would get popsicles. And it made a huge difference. And, you know, all of the guys appreciated it because they were just drenched by the end of the afternoon and they're physically exhausted and having something to cool themselves down it just made them it made them feel good because they they felt like you know management had their back right and we had Gatorade out there and you know we had the right things in place we put out as many fans as we could and you know they you know they understood clearly that you know we're we're trying to make the best out of a bad situation and so it it didn't require people to call in sick and like man i can't handle this heat you know or they just didn't want to get hot and sweaty it's the company made a difference in helping them understand that being hot and sweaty wasn't necessarily a horrible thing at this point it's it stunk and i was out there with them on a couple of days but um you know they got you know they did things to cool them off now bonuses are a little bit different so bonuses should be Really, a comp- really should be an award for, you know, have they allowed the company, you know, what kind of participation did they do to help make the company expand, you know, and grow? Um, did they help increase sales by 10, 15% unexpectedly? Um, you know, if you want to do a year-end bonus, you can do that, but it should be, you know, there should be criteria involved in it. Or you can do a random bonus, but, I mean, it really has to be for, something that's measurable and tangible you just can't give somebody a bonus for the sake of bonusing right some companies will do that they're like you know this person's done such a good job over the years and you know even though they get merit increases and they get these things and they have benefits it's just you know we want to show them a little extra appreciation that's okay so long as it is really rare and or you do it consistently and you do it with some sort of way of determining that this person should get this amount because you know we've honored this particular type of um award before in the past and they that person has met that same level of expectation the challenge about doing bonuses on a random is that if the company unwittingly or un is not aware that they are only rewarding a certain demographic in the business then they're actually creating an invert an adverse impact in the organization so um which means that on the surface it looks good but they have actually violated some laws underneath when you dig into it deeper and it you know if you've got if you've got a sales environment where and i'm just going to use this as an example because it's a realistic example where your sales force could be all caucasian and your uh workforce your your hands-on labor is a minority of any kind could be mixed or you know whatever it could be minorities and there could be caucasian in there too but if only the caucasians in the company are being awarded because those individuals may genuinely have demonstrated 
that they're going above and beyond. Well, over time, if it's discovered, if somebody's keeping track, which you'd be surprised at how many times employees keep track of things that they don't get, um, <laughs> if they notice that there's a distinct pattern, it may not be an intentional pattern, but if the pattern exists, company's exposed. So you really want to make sure that you're putting specific things in place in order to issue a bonus. And it's, you know, if you've got a way to justify it with hard evidence um, of some kind, you're just better off. Okay. That is all the questions I have. Did I wear you out? You, oh, my last, my very last question was if a small business comes up and says, do they need Brenda for HR, my, <laughs> what would you say? I would say absolutely. <laughs> um, if, I mean, I just think there's so much to that encompasses HR that if you're not well versed in it, you without even, without even meaning to do anything, you can set yourself up for so many problems that it's just better to have little Brenda in your back pocket. Oh, I appreciate that. Thank you very much. (laughs) And I like the fact that you call me little. (laughs) I I just, it's amazing. I've learned so much. I've learned so much today. Um, Even more, some of these things we have discussed in the past, but you've brought out even more points that just reiterates the fact that HR is very real, no matter whether your business is small, large, corporate, family-owned, you know, not family-owned. Those issues are all there. And quite honestly, the way I feel, this family-owned could even bring out more HR issues than a non-family-owned business Mm -hmm. because there's so many emotions that get involved, too, if you're not careful. Yeah. I mean, my cousin, I was telling you about, they terminated him. Mm-hmm. That's a hard thing to do. You know, right. I mean, how, you know, you're supposed to be loving grandparents and here you have to turn around and fire your own grandson. Mm-hmm. You know, that, yeah, that's, that's no fun. <clears throat> and of course, everybody now looks to you as, you know, the, the kid's cousin to find out what was the dirt behind the scene. And it's just like, go away. Yeah. Like, I'm not talking to you about my family business. Literally the business of being a family. I'm not talking to you about. So, yeah, yep. but I agree. But thank you very much for that. I appreciate it. And for those that are in the Virginia Beach area um, who need quality lawn care service, how can they get a hold of you guys? They can either visit our Facebook page and our website. Well, I'll just give you our website, which is www.devoslawncare.com. Or they can call me. Um, it's 607-434-0112. It is a New York number, but it does come to us. We are living in Virginia Beach. I have too many kids out there to change my number right now. <laughs> That's just all it is. <laughs> and just so you folks know, you spelled devost D-E-V-O-S-T. That's yes. David, Echo, Victor, Oscar, Samuel, Tango. And uh, that is the correct spelling of devost. There's no E at the end or it's a unique name. But they have an awesome phrase that attaches to their family name. It is, if you want the most, call devost. That's right. 
So thanks again, Elaine, for joining us. I, I really do appreciate it. Excellent, excellent questions. Um, hopefully this gave a lot of insight to, you know, listeners who really kind of operate at your level of the organization um, and help them understand that this is really what, this is really what it's about right here. Yes, I agree. Because as an office manager of a small business that does go out in the work field as well, you are a catch-all and you do hear all. Um, you are the voice, you know, you are the receiver and the voice. So you need a good HR person to make sure that you're saying the right things. Well, thank you very thank you much. Stuff. So we've had a lot of questions come out and um, a lot of long-winded answers, <laughs> but but you know what? That was really good conversation, and we're very grateful that Elaine was with us. But you know what? I want to hear your questions. I want to hear what's on your mind, and you can submit your questions on the bestpractices.org website by clicking on the podcast link from the menu and down towards the bottom of the podcast page is a submission for you to post your question which may be read and answered on an upcoming episode. So usually around about this time, I have a question of the day. We've had so many of them, we're just going to forego that for the right now. But I do have something pretty cool coming down the line that I would like to share with you guys. So August 1st, um, I am launching the HR University, Best Practices HR University. If you go to bestpractices.org, you'll actually see a link up at the top. Um, it is up. It is live and ready to go and for the first five days for every course that I launch it's going to be 50% off so right now is the hiring for employers workshop it is regularly priced at $49 it's less than an hour and right now it's available to you guys and anybody who's jumping in and checking it out for $24.50. So you can go ahead, go on, get some really good information. It'll take you less than, 30, less than 60 minutes to review it. Um, and again, you can find that over at the bestpractices.org website. Also, um, I am now part of the Eagle Rice Speakers Bureau, which I'm pretty excited about. And on September 1st, I'm also going to be conducting every month, starting on September 1st, uh, two sessions, two live sessions. One will be a physical, well they'll both be physical locations, but one of the two, it'll be the same subject every month, but one of the two will be also be a virtual workshop as well. So stay tuned for that. If you haven't heard this, totally new subject, if you haven't heard it, check it out. For those of you who may not know, I do have a second podcast show. Um, it's called A PR Lady and an HR Lady Walk into a Bar. Yes, that's actually really a podcast. And we have had the, one of the most amazing guests I've ever had the ability to speak to. Um, you need to go check it out. It's fantastic. He is the former uh, host of the Team Never Quit podcast. And Chira and I, who you've heard on previous episode here, um, are hosts together. And we got a chance to talk to David Rutherford. And so that episode is also launching on Thursday, August 1st as well. So it is phenomenal. It was such a fun time. Such a fantastic episode. If you haven't heard it, go check it out right now. A PR lady and an HR lady walk into a podcast. You can find that on any of your favorite podcasting 
hosting platforms. Um, also, November 14th, uh, the Stevie Awards is hosting the Women's Future Conference in New York City, which I will be speaking at as a moderator. Uh, and we're going to be talking about navigating your career through challenging times and identifying career trends and potholes. So, ladies, if you are in the mood for a really good women's conference, um, particularly women in business, you are welcome to join me on November 14th up in New York City. Highly recommend you guys come out. It's going to be fantastic. And if you want to know what else is going on, since that doesn't seem to be, that's just the surface of what's happening, you can go ahead and follow me on Instagram and Facebook at Best Practices in HR. You can also follow me on Twitter, LinkedIn, and YouTube at Brenda Neckfottle. And my last name is spelled N-E-C-K, like the thing you want to choke. V as in Victor, A-T-A-L. And again, you can find me over at bestpractices.work. That is the website. Jump on the mailing list and get a free resource from me as a gift to you. So thank you so much for your questions. Thank you for joining me again. It was another really great episode. Keep them coming in. I'd love to hear what's going on. Go online. Get on the social sites. Get engaged. Get involved. Let's have some really good conversation. And I will talk to you folks next time. Have a good one.